Well, good morning again to you, Rock Hill. I hope you have your uh, Bibles in hand or your apps. You can open them up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is where we'll be. We're in a series on the parables of Jesus. Jesus gives a stringing events or a series of parables or stories, and he does them in consecutive order, and he does this for a particular reason. Now, parables are stories where you take common things and connect them to some uncommon realities, familiar things trying to help connect the dots to maybe something unfamiliar, earthly things, earthly things so that you can connect them to heavenly things. This is just the pattern of which Jesus brings out or bears out the parables we find here in Matthew, particularly here in chapter 13. Now, in the parables, Jesus is and it has a goal. Jesus wants to communicate a secret of the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Now, when first century Jews heard about the kingdom of God, they were thinking that Jesus would come in a physical throne, sitting on a throne on the earth, and rule and reign all over Israel. But Jesus had a different idea when it came to the kingdom of God. He had something not just earthly, but he had something into the heavens that he was describing. We begin to see in Matthew 13, then a mixture of things that come about in these stories. I don't know about you, but there's been some things that I thought should remain separated that man has tried to join together. Here's a few of them that God has separated, but we've tried to join together. One of them is this, cereal and water. Yeah, how dare you? Uh, you know, if you're short on milk, some people say, just put some water in your cereal, it'll taste just the same. It does not taste the same. I know money's tight, inflation's high, but we cannot do this, all right? Uh, this is homework, homework on the weekends. They should not be mixed together. That, that's a little plug for you kids, all right? No amens from them, okay. <clears throat> uh, somebody did this, I don't know why. That's hot sauce and Oreos. I, I don't know why anybody would do this, but I'm, I, I don't know, what to, I, it's on another category. And I thought this was the worst thing that I saw that people would mix together to eat. I mean, this isn't at the county fair. This, this might be the worst thing that you could combine. Clam chowder and a popsicle. I don't know why anybody would do this, but they need to repent of their sin and come to faith in Jesus is what they need to do. Now, what does that have to do with this text? Well, there's a mixing of things that take place, and Jesus is going to identify that when something in a bad way is mixed together, the results of that, and then he's going to describe how we can mix something small, and it could actually make something beautiful. So you have your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 24, read all the way through verse 43 this morning. We'll put it on the screen for you to follow if you don't have your Bibles. But if you're there, will you say word? He, being Jesus, presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while people were sleeping, the enemy, his enemy, came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And he left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, there were weeds also, they also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in the field? Then where did the weeds come from? He said, an enemy did this, he told them. So they asked, so do you want us to go up and pull the weeds up? And he said, no. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest at harvest time. I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. 
Verse 31, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when grown, when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. This is the third one. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Verse 34, Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable. That means he's just giving all these stories. So that, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept in secret from the foundation of the world. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and the disciples, and he went to the house. The disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. They were very interested. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. Those are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin. And those guilty of lawlessness, they will throw them in the burning furnace, blazing furnace, excuse me where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. Jesus has given us this parable, and really he's given us three parables, and while each parable could be a sermon in and of itself, we'll spend the majority of our time, because Jesus takes time to explain it on this first parable. The first thing we see is that Jesus sorts. Jesus sorts. Now, what's interesting is that you would come to this parable, and maybe you're familiar with last week, and you recall just in a few verses above that there was a different parable given, and it involved a field, and it involved a sower, and it involved the, the hard road or the path that the seed fell on. It involved the rocky soil that some of the seed fell on. It involved the, 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 the area where the, the thorns and the weeds began to choke out the good seed, and then it landed on the good soil and produced fruit. This parable is different from that parable because while it does involve the sower and it does involve seed, Jesus has a different application. See, the application in the previous parable was that there would be fruit-bearing seed. That seed that would be planted would grow and bear fruit. Here, and that was good, but here the parable is a little bit different. The, the emphasis on the parable is actually on what happens to the bad seed and the good seed. Here in this parable, we see a few things. We see it starting in verse 24. He says he presented another parable. The kingdom of heaven. Again, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven throughout these parables. It's to be compared to a man, remember this, who sowed good seed in his field. He is out sowing seed. This is what the good man does. But we learn in verse 25 that while people were sleeping, his enemy came. That's critical. Remember that. And he sold what? Weeds among the wheat. And then he left. Verse 26. When the plants sprouted and produced, that means there was growth that is happening in both. The weeds also appeared. So when the seed went out from the, into the good soil, it, was, it produced fruit. And when the seed, it was bad seed that went out into the good soil or the field, it produced weeds or weeds into this good land. The reality is that Thankfully, the disciples asked the question that many of us were asking, can you please explain this? It's always helpful when Jesus gives a parable and then he explains the parable. It's the same way when you describe something to your children using an illustration and then they go, can you explain the illustration? 
So he comes back in verse 37 and he tells them, you can see it in your text, the good sower is the son of man. He tells us this in verse 37. I'm not making this up. He literally says, verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now in your Bibles, it should be capitalized. The son of man is a title for Jesus. It has several implications of why this is important and it would have connected the dots in a large way for the disciples and maybe for you it's a little bit distant because of time and a little bit of space. But Jesus having the title of the Son of Man meant several things. Number one, it, it meant that, that he was human. It, it refers to the humanity of Jesus, meaning that Jesus just didn't appear as a, as a seance or he didn't appear as a ghost. He was in the flesh. He was on this earth. God, by his grace, did not cry out from heaven, get your act together. He physically sent the Son, Jesus, to the earth, and it describes, the Son of Man describes his humanity. But not just his humanity, it describes his humility. There's a sense of which the Son of Man describes the humility of Jesus, that, as Philippians 2, Paul identifies and says that, that God set beside these things, and came in the flesh. There's a great humility about the nature of Jesus. He didn't come demanding things of how to be served. He served others. He came and he was humble in the way in which he came. There's a great sense that not only does the Son of Man title describe his humanity and his humility. It literally describes his deity. Jesus being the Son of Man. The, the Son that was the, the model, the example of how mankind should have been and yet they failed to be. Jesus coming in the flesh, the incarnation describes this idea of him being not just fully man but also being fully God. This is a reality that not only was his humanity and humility, does it describe his deity, but also it fulfills prophecy. That there'd be one who was sent and so when Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, he's describing what he does when he's on the earth. He is sowing seeds, sowing seeds for wheat. But then he describes the field. What's the field? He says in verse 38, literally the verse says the field is the world. That's what the verse says in verse 38. In the last parable, again, there were four different places in which the seed fell. But in this parable, very specifically, we are told what the field is. The field is the entire world. So there's a great sense here where we're not talking about different types of soils, which was part of the application last week. We're talking about that the whole world is the field of God in which he is casting seeds of which to plant good producing wheat. He talks about good seed. The good seeds are the children of the kingdom. We, we would say that these are those who are followers of Christ, those who've trusted in Jesus with their life. The good seed are those that the sower has cast out and they've been planted and they've grown and they're bearing out fruit, their good seed. He describes the bad seed. The bad seed, as he says so eloquently and very literally in verse 38, the bad seeds are the weeds or the children of the evil one. We would describe these as unbelievers, those who have not chosen to follow Jesus with their life, those who were not planted by the Son of Man. They were planted by the evil one. See, the evil one has come along. It says in the first part of the parable that while he was asleep or while they were all asleep, the bad sower, he tells us in verse 38, but also in verse 39, is the devil. 
that the enemy has gone about. And we learn this in other letters from the disciples and the apostles that they will say that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Another way that we would describe this is that what the God has so planted in, the enemy wants to plant something else to choke it out. The struggle that Jesus was facing in the first century was similar to the struggle we face today. The same struggles that first century Israel had is a similar struggle that we face here in our country ourselves. Part of the reason why I think Jesus is giving this parable is because the first century Jew thought because of their ethnicity, because of their nationality, because of their bloodline, because of their location, that when the Messiah came, they'd be just fine. Because we're children of Abraham. You remember the song, Father Abraham and many sons, many sons had father. Okay, just a few of you graduated from VBS. (laughs) They had this sense of, well, because I'm I'm, I'm part of the tribe of Abraham, I'm fine. I'm good. I don't have any need to worry about what happens. I can do whatever I want because as long as I make a sacrifice and as long as I show up to the temple, I'll be all right. I don't know if they talked like that. Obviously, they didn't speak English, but that's what I imagine if they did. Jesus was coming to tell them, hey, just because of your ethnicity, just because of your nationality, just because of your bloodline, just because of your location does not mean that you are part of the children of the kingdom. The children of the kingdom are planted not by man, but by the son of man, the the God-man. We face a similar challenge I think, in our own county and nation. It's claimed that millions of people go to worship every week. See, you can grow up in church. What I mean by grow up in church is that you came to church with your parents. It's one of the, one of the things that they, rhythms they practice throughout their days. And over that time, you can actually learn the lingo of church. You can learn, sitting in a class, the things you should say and the things you shouldn't say. Often what you shouldn't say is corrected pretty, pretty, pretty sharply by Sunday school teachers, in a loving way, of course. You can learn how to kind of put on a, a smile and maybe fake it along that you've got your stuff together. You, you can even be so ingrained into the culture of a church that people come to you for advice because you generally give good advice and you give that good advice, yet you don't live that good advice. You can show up and and even contribute and serve and give in particular ways, but, but there will come a day at some point where the harvest time is going to happen and you will be exposed for being a weed. It's hard for us as even pastors to be able to navigate some of that with individuals who come to our church. We have a class in which we are encouraging people to participate in so we can hear even afterward your testimony of how you came to salvation. And you can know your testimony so well because you know the lingo so well that you could even convince us that you are a follower of Christ when in reality your heart is far from him. We face a similar problem today in America where being a Christian really doesn't cost you anything Certainly in some places in the world, it does cost you your life if you choose to follow Jesus. But in America, for the large part, you're not going to lose your life because you're a follower of Jesus. For the most part, there are instances that that happens, but for the most part, no one's coming on a Sunday morning to shut us down. We've made the gospel 
church attendance. And so we think if I become a CEO Christian, which is not you, but you know what a CEO Christian is, Christmas and Easter only. If I just get a hold of the, one of the pastor's cell phone number and can text him whenever I need some prayer, will you, will you put a good word in for the man upstairs is often what they'll say. There's a sense of which if you could do all those things and even attend a church, even give and even be sacrificial in your giving and courageous in your generosity and yet your heart is far from the Lord. I think the same thing that Jesus was facing in the first century is what we face here at our church as well. Give the appearance. That's what weeds do. They they look like wheat. They act like wheat. They have the same color as wheat. But in the end, at the harvest time, they're wheat, not they're weeds. You can give the appearance of being a Christian. You can look like a Christian. You can talk like a Christian. You can even, to some degree in the public sector, live like a Christian. But your heart can be far from the Lord. And part of what I think Jesus is getting at is that the only thing worse then being a believer and doubting your salvation is not doubting your salvation and not being a believer. The only thing worse than being a Christian and doubting your salvation is not questioning your salvation and not being a believer. He titled the message, Fake Christians. Because I think there's a great sense in which people trusted in their own nationality, their own ethnicity, their own bloodline, and even their own location, to ensure their salvation. And Jesus says, no, 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 you have to be a seed planted by the Son of Man, the good seed sown into the field of this world. And the only way that can happen is when you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord. It's amazing here that you can do all those things of looking like a Christian and not be saved. See, many of us don't want to follow Jesus because we don't want Jesus to interfere our lives. Can I just tell you that Jesus is always in the business of interrupting and interfering your life? I think about Paul who's on the road to Damascus with a list of individuals of whom to arrest to be followers of Jesus. And on that road to Damascus, God interrupts his life. I think about the Ethiopian eunuch who's doing his own thing and Philip all of a sudden appears and he shares to him and connects the gospel message to him and he comes to faith in Jesus. I think about the disciples even. The disciples weren't looking for Jesus. See, I think we get this idea of like, I'm just a seeker, it's looking for Jesus. You don't seek Jesus, Jesus seeks you. And the disciples are just doing their own thing, following their, just fishing. That's all they're doing. Biblical to fish, and so they're fishing. You're welcome to the two guys that like that. They're just fishing, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears, and he says to them, hey, drop your nets and come and follow me. He interrupts their life. We don't like interruptions. We like to do what we want to do at the time that we want to do them. We don't like to be interrupted in our lives, but Jesus always interrupts our lives. The seed's been cast into the field. We have to ask the question, then, are you good seed? Are you good seed? Verse 29, they ask the question that many of us might ask. They ask this question. They say, hey, should we pull up the weeds? We see the weeds. Last, remember last week I talked about how I like to pick weeds. It happened again this week. In fact, a church member rode his bicycle by and said, ah, oh, evidence that you weren't lying from the pulpit. As if I would lie from the pulpit. 
But that illustration does not work with this parable. Because they say, well, should we remove all the bad seed or the weeds that are, that are in among the wheat mixed up together? Should we remove that, Master? And he says, no, because when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Confession, there's been times where I'm pulling weeds and I end up pulling good grass, okay? But he says, let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, which are his angels, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles and, look what he says, burn them. Woo! At harvest time, so why doesn't the Lord just remove all the evil ones from our presence here among us even today? Could you imagine if we prayed that prayer, the reality would be, if that's what would happen, none of us would be here. For while we were still sinners, while we were still helpless, Christ died for us. For a good man, one might dare to die, although no one would die for a righteous man, but a good man, one might even dare to die. But God proves, or God demonstrates, or God shows, or God displays his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are you good seed? We don't like to talk about hell, but look what he says in verse 42. At the harvest time, which is why some revivals are called harvest time, trying to gather the harvest. At harvest time, who will throw them in the blazing furnace. Notice that, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is where this comes from when he describes hell. Now, a lot of churches don't like to talk about hell because they want to be seeker sensitive and want to warm you up before you get warmed up. But Jesus here is very clear. See, I think there's a degree of which we like to kind of play both sides of an angle. We get political when it comes to our salvation. We, we want on one end to say, yes, Lord, whatever you would have for us, whatever you want us to do. But then on the other end, we still want to do whatever we want to do and how we want to do it. Jesus doesn't play that game, friend. He says when this field and this field which is the world and the seed is cast down, there's either good seed or there is bad seed. There is no in-between of almost their seed. You either are a believer or you are not a believer. And if you are not a believer, you need to know that there will be a day. And I don't know when that day will be. I don't know if it will be tomorrow. I don't know if it will be at 1102. I don't know if it will be next week. I don't know if it will be after I'm already gone. But there will be a day that the harvest time comes. And when the harvest time comes, he will gather all the weeds and he will put them into a fiery furnace and in that burning and blazing furnace there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth and you say but isn't God love see I believe that God is love and he accepts everybody he, he just doesn't accept serial killers that's the only people he doesn't accept but he'll accept everybody else and God is love and he has displayed his love I mean, we learned this even last week in Ephesians chapter 2. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with him. By grace you've been saved. And he seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming days he might display the immeasurable riches of his kindness and his grace towards us. Not done by works of man, 
but done by God. God has displayed his love and his kindness and his grace and his gentleness and his favor towards us in that he sent Jesus to the cross to die for us. And there will be a day where those who are outside of the kingdom, those that are not followers, they are not children of the kingdom, they will be gathered up and they will spend an eternity separated from God, not annihilated, not just gone off into an existence of whatever you want it to be. They are gone and they will burn and they will have weeping and there will be gnashing and you must choose you this day whom you will serve. And that's not to cause celebration for those who are Christians, but to grieve and to plead with those who are not followers of Jesus to repent today and believe. He then says in verse 43, but the righteous, they're going to shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. There's a contrast. Those who are the children of the evil one, they will burn, but those that are children of the king, they'll shine like the sun. Jesus is going to sort things out. But then he also sows. Look at the next verses. It's the smallest of the seeds. He's talking about the mustard seed. Jesus moves from sorting to now he's going to give a a parable about seed. A seed is planted and it's a small seed, but it grows to be the largest in the garden. And birds come and they flock and they, they Get in it. And then there's another idea of sowing in that a a lady takes some leaven and she puts it into 50 pounds of flour and she kneads it together or sows it, if you will, in there and it spreads until all of the flour is leavened. The idea here is that Jesus is sowing some things. The kingdom seems small and insignificant, but it ends up growing and is a masterful thing, a beautiful reality. Jesus is giving this picture of the kingdom that you may think it's small and insignificant, but it's going to carry on for eternity. Again, he was dealing with this mindset that the first century Jew had of the kingdom of God. They believed that it was a particular way, and Jesus says it's not that way. It's going to seem small now, but it's going to expand. And you think about what God does with small things. Jesus came not as a fully formed man, but as a baby. Small, some think insignificant, but we all know every child matters, and every child is significant. And this child is born and grows, and it seems small and in relatively obscurity. I mean, his dad's a carpenter, and they say, could anything come from Nazareth? Anything good come from there? Jesus comes and he lives the life that you could not live and dies the death you deserve to die. And he's buried in the tomb and he rose from the grave. And then he appeared in front of witnesses, ascended into heaven. And one day he's going to return. Small things, big impact. It's why whenever you're trying to create a new habit, you don't start off by trying to do them all at once. You just change one thing at a time. A friend called this week and he's into, he's into lifting heavy things. He likes to pick up heavy things and put them down. We call that weight training. I think it's fine if you want to do that, but that's what he likes to pick up heavy things and put them down. Pick up heavy things and put them down. He's got a trap bar. That's all he does. It's like, look, look, Kreiner. So that's great, but I can outrun you. So he asked, he said, hey, can, I, can you teach me on how to do some more cardio? I need to insert cardio because I, I said, well, why do you want to have, learn more cardio? He said, because I love food. And I'm picking up and putting down, and then I'm picking up and putting down. I mean, this is what's happening. 
I said, well, here's my only suggestion. Turn the doorknob. He went, what? I said, it's a small thing. It may seem insignificant, but turn the doorknob. Now, there's other things that go into that, like you got to set out your shoes and your clothes for the, the morning, but you wake up with the intention that morning to turn the doorknob and go outside and run. I'm not saying run 10 miles. I'm not saying run for 10 minutes. Just run for a minute. Just turn that doorknob. Just create this habit that I'm making a decision right now to go outside. It's a small thing, but it can lead to great impact. It's amazing to me that in Acts 17, 6, this is exactly what Jesus would say, or they would say about the disciples Remember the disciples, they weren't necessarily the smartest group, but they were the group that was committed to the Lord. But they say in Acts 17, 6, hey, these are the guys that are turning the world upside down. Imagine what God did with just these 11, and then they added a 12th man after Judas departed. What God did through these men, and it was only 12. What God might do through this church what God might do through your family, what God might do through your neighborhood or your circle of friends or your small group or Sunday morning group, what God might do, it seems small, it's not very big, it doesn't have a big impact, but you need to, re need to realize that God takes small things and they become and have a big impact. Jesus sows kingdom grows in your heart and it begins to permeate every area of your life just like the leaven does in the flour and lastly Jesus is going to spell out some things in the next verses I was tempted to just kind of pass over these few verses but my conscience wouldn't let me Jesus says some things he, he told the crowd He said, I didn't tell him anything without a parable. Then he says this in verse 35. He says, why am I speaking in parables? Look at that, so that. So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He's quoting to us Psalm 78. Now, Psalm 78 is a specific psalm that we're going to deal with a little bit more tonight at our family night at 5 p.m. No supper. That's okay. You can go supper afterward. Only be an hour. I'm going to celebrate all that God did this summer, worship together. I'm going to share and lay out some things that I believe God is going to do in us in this next year, my hopes and dreams. Psalm 78 is a psalm that we've already preached on before this year. One of the critical things in Psalm 78 is you have a generation that has not told their sons and daughters the faithfulness of the Lord and but down along the lines, they say, we will tell them. We will tell them the truths of God. We will declare the things of the Lord. We will tell the next generation the deeds of the Lord and his glorious might. And here, Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy. The things that were kept in secret, I'm now declaring to you. What were the secrets of the kingdom that Jesus Christ had come to save sinners? That you didn't come seeking for him, he came seeking for you. 
that you were lost, that you didn't even realize you were lost, but he has found you and he is calling you to repent and respond to the good news of the gospel. That he wants to take your broken marriage and he wants to heal it. He wants to take your broken family, he wants to make it whole. He wants to take your poor choices and say, hey, that's part of your story of how I'm redeeming you for a new life in me. Jesus spells out why he talks in parables. He talks in parables so that the things that have been the secret are now revealed. Are you a seed? Or a weed? Are you wheat? Or are you a weed? Praise God that I don't believe that we could read a lot into this parable, but I don't think that's the point of the parable. I think the point of the parable is to call out people to realize, do I really believe in Jesus? Do I believe in Jesus for my salvation? Not just showing up, not just attending that church on the highway, but really trusting in Christ. And today can be the day that you've chosen to follow Jesus. And some of you say, man, I, I feel like the last parable that, man, there's just some things choking my life out. But let me tell you something. As we sang today, the Lord has not abandoned you. He is near. He loves you. But our rebellion has caused us to have a separation from the Father. And he's calling out today saying, hey, the harvest time is coming. The harvest time is coming. If you're part of the wheat, you'll be gathered together and put into the barn. But if you're part of the weeds, there will come a day. He will gather those weeds. He'll put them in a blazing furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you believe Let's pray. Father, we come now, and Lord, we believe that you have revealed the secrets of the foundation of the world to your people, and Lord, we're asking that for those in here who are not part of your family, that Lord, they would repent of their sin right now. They would feel the confident urge by the Holy Spirit who's calling them to respond, and that they would respond to you, not to me, not to any, the, any song, but to you, speaking to them for salvation. For those who feel abandoned and fraught with tension, that, Lord, they would know that there is healing and love and peace for them. And, Lord, help us to respond to you as the message has landed in the hearts of the hearer today. We ask this in Christ's name.